Hello, everybody. It's uh, been so great hearing from everybody as my book is coming out on purpose, with purpose. The launch team is absolutely rocking and rolling. And, uh, you know, as you've been following me, this entire journey I've had after that accident to put me in the hospital for two years to recreate everything out of my life, to take advantage of the second chance, to step into uh, this opportunity to completely rewrite my script. But it really started with the foundational one piece. And that was, I had to figure out who I was. Because what I realized was until you, I understood really who I was and who God made me to, to be, all those other things I've been seeking for, my calling, my purpose, understanding my why, my what, my how, all of these different things were really challenging for me. And that's what that book is all about. So yeah, love for you guys to just be part of what's happening here at beyondinfluence.com forward slash book. And with that, one of uh, my greatest wingmen and encouragers is Tommy Breedlove. And after Tommy and I have just become great friends. And Trey, it sounds like Tom, that is a habit that Tommy has, isn't it? Don't you hear that from everybody that Tommy knows? Yes, I do. And so like <laughs> I'm sitting here talking everybody, I'm sitting here talking with Tommy. He goes, hey you got to talk with Trey. I'm like, okay, who's Trey? He's like, dude, he's the best. You're and a little bit of, of Trey's history in business, got his law degree. He became a recovering lawyer. Is that correct? Joined the family business. Yep. Some really challenging times. If anybody's been in a generational family business, knows what that's all about. Through that, uh, not only is he running a successful company and family office for his company, but uh, does leadership coaching and consulting. And this is going to be a great topic because, uh, Trey, from your perspective, because the book that you wrote is called A CEO Only Does Three Things. And I think That's that right. it's really great, right? Because we what it's about all about finding your focus in the C-suite. And I know we have a lot of listeners out there that are either in the C-suite or, you know what, they're leaders and they're great people and they're putting in the work and they're going to be in the C-suite. And we need to change how things are done and how we lead. So I'm really looking forward to uh, what we're going to share today. So, but with that, Trey, I would love for you to give just a little bit of kind of background and your story so we can get to know you a little bit before we dive into what are some of these three things that we need to be doing? Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and be with you. It's not often that we get to sort of circle up as believers and talk about business, right? Because usually when we're together, we're talking about uh, sort of more uh, church-related things, but uh, this is a real great opportunity, and I think that's why Tommy uh, had so much good things to say about uh, this audience and uh, why he thought I might have something to share. So, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to be with you guys. And like you said, by way of background, I was, uh, you know, I was born in a faith forward family. We were, we always had that uh, around us and came to my beliefs and my faith on my own terms uh, as an adult, which was good. And it all happened sort of in the same mix. So I, you know, my dad always said to me, don't do what I do for a living. Like, don't come into this family business. I think you've got a little more uh, inside of you that could be teased out and built into a really great career. So uh, I went to law school to ex exactly to find that. And I came out of law school at a time when um, sort of internet 1.0 was being tried and they had the internet bubble and, you know, all of the financial stuff that went into building that bubble and coming out of it. But 
you know, I, I didn't go into practice. I went straight in house with some of these internet companies like WebMD and AOL and Earthlink. And I got into the venture capital business because I loved the formation process of the first three to five years of a business and did that sort of thing. And then John, as I was telling you, one day I was standing on the front lawn waiting for movers to come and get my stuff and move me to a new position I had uh, created for me at AOL. And uh, my mom called my cell phone and my mom and dad had gone to Vegas sort of for the first week of the year to decompress from the, you know, the previous year. And dad wasn't well, but he wasn't, um, you know, we didn't think he was ill by any means. And um, uh, she said, hey, you need to be on a plane if you want to say goodbye to your dad, because I don't think I'm bringing him home. Mm -hmm. And it was a shock because I didn't even know he had gone into the hospital or anything of that nature. So I did do that. My brother and I met at the airport in Atlanta and got to Vegas as quickly as we could. And then we brought my dad home, but not where we wished he was sitting in the front seat of the plane. And then I had a choice to make. Do I go and pursue the life that I am building for myself and was sort of getting good at and getting known for being really good at certain things? Or do I pay back a debt and an obligation to the family that had loved me and put me in a situation where I can do exactly those things? It wasn't until I looked in the mirror and really had that man-to-man conversation, you know, that I said, my dad never said no to me in any meaningful thing anything that would grow me into something he would make happen for me money-wise or leadership-wise or any of that sort of thing. And so with that said, I knew that I had to pay that back. And I always felt like that was an obligation. I just thought the obligation payback would come on my terms, my timing, and it didn't. So it came at that time. So I felt, I, I had shared with you, I felt like a little kid in his dad's big chair, you know, my feet dangling over the sides and sort of, you know, playing CEO of the family business, which and is how old were you then, Trey? I was uh, probably 35 at that point, 34, 35, something like that. Yeah. And um, from now, you know, as a lawyer, legal field, right, you're leading some teams, but, you know, to be thrown into that chief executive role, what you had done, well, let me ask you a question. What you had done previously, all your experience, had that prepared you for what you needed to do in that kind of leadership role? I'll say yes and and not mean it wholeheartedly. So um, I don't think I had been trained for the specific tasks that were coming to me as, as an attorney and as a corporate development guy, which is really what I was. I wasn't practicing any kind of law. It was really corporate development work. You're the internal answer guy. So somebody comes to you and says, we're going to do this, find out how to do it. And they come to you, you know, and you're a functionary and your responsibility ends when you give that answer. That doesn't describe any part of being a CEO. And so, you know, when I was sitting in that chair, I was constantly looking, you know, I didn't want anybody to figure out that I didn't know what I was doing. They knew. I didn't want them to figure it out. And the first maturity point I had is when I go to one of my sales guys and said, look, I'm going to go with you on this sales call, but don't get me in danger because I don't know anything. And it was a maturity point so that I could admit that to somebody. And that, that guy, that sales guy is still with my organization. He loves to tell that story because for him, it wasn't important that I didn't know how to sell the product. He knew how to do that, but it was important for him to have a place, a functional place from which to sell the product. And that was my job. And that's what I had to learn. And that's what I learned and put it right. Yeah. That's an employee benefits practice. Yep. Okay. Now fast forward. um, And the cool thing is too, a CEO does only three things. I've gotten to know Kevin Harrington, a few times, some of you might remember him from, uh, he was the original shark in the Shark Tank. 
And I think the, right. if I remember, I think the whole concept was his idea. And uh, yeah, the producers came to him and said, we're going to do this. And we want to, you know, you look at pitches all day long and that's what we want to do here. And so he was the first one that they signed. And then I think they got the idea later, like we're going to add a whole bunch of people. It's not just going to be pitching you. It's going to be three or four people. And then that thing is, you know, it has legs of its own. I was in the hotel room. I'm at a conference now in a hotel room last night and they were still showing episodes from like 2013 or something of that nature. You know? <laughs> yeah. Back. Yeah. It's become popular. But the thing about Kevin and, you know, people that have that much experience, they can look at what needs to happen and move forward. And uh, so I just think it's neat. And what some of the things he said in the forward were extraordinary, but all right. So think about this folks out there right now, who maybe have just, especially because of what's happened in the economy, with the pandemic, with all of these incredible, these massive, these rapid changes that are happening, and they've been thrust into a leadership role, whether it's CEO or whether it's, hey, you know what, we need somebody to manage this team, the team that you've been part of. I mean, they've just been thrust into a leadership role where they feel like you said, right? Like I'm sitting in daddy's chair and my feet don't even really yep. touch the floor, and, yep. you know, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. It's a large team and five of the people on the team, they really enjoy working with and managing. And three of the people that you just used to be their peers, they've never gotten along with. Now they have to lead this entire team because the organization's counting on them. I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios, but what advice would you give to people when you were, if you look back when that happened to you, when you're first thrust into that role, you don't feel prepared for it. Yeah, it goes back to first principles. What is it that you believe and what do you understand your role to be? And I could ask anybody in the organization that question, and then we need to build the organizational fit around the way that the person views themselves. And most of the time, we don't do that. Most of the time, we do it backwards, right? We say, I've got this, this job, now go find the right person for the job. But we have to be a lot more whole person-centered in our management and in our, in our thinking of how do we grow grow our businesses into their ultimate, you know, expression of themselves. Yeah. So I agree with you. Understanding who you are, I think understanding why you're there. And you shared some things too, like with the sales rep, you, you know, don't be afraid to admit, I don't know anything here. I'm also willing to guess that you probably reached out and did you build some people that could mentor you, disciple you, coach you? you know, external yeah. to the organization that kind of, you know, you could call and say, oh my gosh, I had a great day. Let's celebrate. Cause you can't always do that with your team or just say, I messed that up, but I, I don't know what, even how I messed it up. I'm clueless. Yeah, exactly. So I spent the first year all alone, right? Just relying on the people that were there. But to your point, I began to notice that if I said, well, gosh, maybe we should go in this direction. If that didn't align with whatever was in the perceived best interest of the person I shared it with, then the feedback was chaos and don't make a change to something that could, could not be good to me, even if it's good to the whole organization. So I recognize relatively quickly, I need mentors and I need peers that I can have these conversations with. And so this took a while, but what I have done now is I built what I call a management cadence for myself, where every week I have a meeting with the senior leadership of all of my companies together so that they know what the other companies are working on, right? And maybe there's some cross-pollination or they at least understand, hey, I don't have Trey's resource this week for this project because he's over here doing this. 
I do that weekly. On a monthly basis, I have a Vistage group membership and I treat those guys as if they are my board of directors. So they didn't do this when I joined the group, but I started bringing my monthly numbers and saying, I want to look at my numbers every single month here. And I want you guys holding me accountable because at first my board was my mom and my brother. And my mom, if we had a bad year, she said, you'll do better next year. But my brother said, well, how does that help me? You know, you got to hook me up, you know? So it wasn't a functional board. So I use Vistage as my board. And then on a quarterly basis, I do several things. But one of the things I do is I'm a member of a, a mastermind and I go to that mastermind that has nothing to do with any of my industries, but is all about working on me as the leader and the CEO of the combined entities that I want to be in. And I, I actually am in four or five masterminds to do that in specific ways that I study things. And then every half year, we have a management retreat. Well, you're in four or five masterminds? John, I don't know that I can count them for you, but it's at least four off the top of my head. I hope everybody just heard that because I think it's really important for all of us to be like for me as a coach, I always have a mastermind that I'm in that I pay for, that I'm showing up and somebody has prepared and they know us and they're running the agenda where I can actually just show up and just not only give, but receive really helpful things. I'm also in a mastermind of my peers that I help put together, people I really respect that are at the same place I'm at and we're all headed in the same direction. And then there's also a mastermind that I facilitate. Now, every CEO, that's not always the best thing, but being in different masterminds, because the power of the mastermind is this brain trust that forms as you share your challenges, your your numbers, your you know, what's going on? Like, hey, I just had this bad interaction with this employee. Well, yeah, buddy, let me give you some feedback. It's because you are way too intense. You are like, get the job done. And this other person over here is one of the most relational people ever. And if you lost her, it would kill your team. So it's actually on you, not her. But, you know, sometimes it takes other people and their perspective to give us the feedback that we really need to hear. Because sometimes, especially in the CEO spot, we're not getting the feedback that we really need. No, that's exactly correct. And what I write about in the book is that the CEO's job is the loneliest job in the company. And that's the joy and the hurt of it. You know, so you're not allowed to celebrate victories in the same way if you have people subordinate to you who participated in those victories and the defeats you own all by yourself. And so you need peers to lean, you know, hand, hand to shoulder to lean on sometimes to say, Trey, you're doing a great job. Or have you noticed the last four interactions you've described have a similar theme? It's you, you need to fix it, whatever the feedback happens to be. I don't know another way to get that. And when I found the mastermind model, that's when I, I knew that that's part of my process going forward. So for example, we formalized a family office structure for our three-generation family right now. And the first thing I did was join a family office mastermind. And I'm sitting across the table with people who are managing half a billion to a billion dollars in family wealth, their own families and other families. And the only thing I'm asking them is, I don't have that much you know, managed, of course, but the only thing I'm asking them is, what do you wish you knew when you started? What does the journey look like for you so that I know, am I on or off purpose with this? And uh, I've only done one of those meetings, but that four hour Zoom meeting was two years worth of stuff that it would take me to learn by trial and error. And I would lose time, money, and resources by doing that. No, there's no question for me that mastermind time machine is the right one. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. So to do, if you guys are not in a mastermind 
or you don't have some people outside your organization that you just trust enough to just really share with where you can go get some feedback, go, you know, talk through things. I think it's critical. Every time I've tried to do it on my own, progress is just, it's either slow or sometimes even goes backwards. But when you wrote the book, right, three things about finding your focus. And I'm sure as you probably were in the uh, phase of putting all this together, you wanted to share this with people. There was a lot of different things that you were processing through. And I agree where you landed. I absolutely, I'm so agree with. And the first one is culture. Second is people. Mm -hmm. Then we focus on the numbers. And let's talk about culture. Because I think, you know, so many people talk about culture, Trey, And I think it's almost become just a word that we throw out there, culture, 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 right? Culture trumps everything. But I agree with you. And culture is like this collection of our values, our mindsets, how we treat people, uh, what's been modeled from others. Because, you know, if you look in an organization, you teach what you tolerate. Right. So I might have this amazing value proposition and mission statement and all these things. But if I'm doing some things, I'm showing up and acting counter to some of those or I'm tolerating others that do all of a sudden what what you actually do is you create a culture. This isn't like a mistake or a little error. Like you're showing people that are coming into your organization what's appropriate and what's not like. And that's exactly it. How do you. When you come into an organization and you know there's things in the culture, like let's say you got 50 or 100 people, I mean, making cultural changes might seem to you sitting in that chair challenging, but where do you start? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I like to show people to really crystallize the idea in their head, culture and cultivate share the same Latin root. And that Latin root word means to take care of, right? So if you cultivate uh, you know, a garden of herbs and spices or or, you know, valuable vegetables and food and that sort of thing, you are taking care of it and you are putting good things in and taking bad things out, weeds and anything that will choke the growth of the good thing. Is there any difference in what we're trying to do in in our corporate culture work? No, there's no difference. We take care of the things that we want to see. Well, what are those things? Those are our values. And I always start the entire engagement process with I want to know what the articulated values, what statement can you stand up in front of the entire company and say, this is something that we aspire to be perfect in at all times. We value it so much that we want to be master practitioners of this value. And going through that process, uh, determining what those values are. Some companies have two to four, some have 15 to 20. I have a client has 27 core values. And they have gone through the process and identified those and have not felt comfortable to reduce them any further. And so that's their call and that's what they do. And I'm not even, I'm not even concerned about it. You know, I had a, I had a company do that too. So I, I challenged them though. And I said, you know, 20, uh, it was in that number. It was over 20. I'm yeah. like, wow, how do you, yeah. how do I like uh, make decisions in alignment with that? And I said, okay, if you look at all these values, are, are there any themes that come out to you? It actually created this incredible discussion. So they actually broke down this big list of values into five different then core areas. So now they have their core guiding principles and under each principle is a list of four or five values. That's right. right? Yeah. The first one is we value the unique, uh, each unique individual, or we recognize the value of each 
uh, unique individual. So underneath that, one of the values would be like, we always give feedback from an encouraging perspective. So they had all these things Mm -hmm. that helped them start kind of framing it out, but you needed to have the conversation. If it's an exercise, the group does, and then you stick in a folder. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, it's not valuable. Most guys do. Yeah. Or look at uh, Enron, right? Enron had one of the best like mission statements you've ever heard. They had it carved in marble with gold lettering, gold leaf lettering in the lobby of their building. And you walked right past it and you went into one of the offices and no one was living that mission statement. It wasn't a value. It wasn't something that was cultivated. And here's the real secret of culture. Culture is only culture when it shows up in the behavior of your people, when you are not there to dictate that behavior. Mm. It's the secret manager that you don't have to pay and hire and and go through. People know this is the way we behave because our culture is one of values and these are things that we value. This is how we treat others. So what is the foundation that you had to lay that allowed that to happen when you were gone? Because things had to happen to make that change. Yeah, I had to build out the articulated nature of the culture. And that an articulated values culture, its opposite is the lowest common denominator culture. Because you have a culture, whether you want to admit it or want to have one or think it's bunkum or any of that stuff, you still got one. If you don't articulate values and nurture those values and ritualize them and practice them yourself and insist on the practices that go along with it, your culture devolves into something that's a least common denominator culture. And here's the key point between the two. An articulated values culture, if you've done your job correctly as the CEO, benefits the organization as a whole. And not one one single individual can get an advantage of that. And a lowest common denominated culture benefits the individual at the expense of the whole. And that's not good for anybody because that person- now, What would be an example of that, Trey? Well, I was at uh, Earthlink for a while and not to speak ill of a company that used to pay my paycheck, which I very much earned, but very much appreciated. It was a culture that if you weren't personal buddies with somebody on the eighth floor, you know, the C-suite, then you weren't, your ideas and your, the work that you brought to the table simply wasn't valued the same as someone who had that personal and political connection, even if their ideas were you know, much worse than yours and that sort of thing. And so what happened was everybody in the company worked their own pet projects and they didn't share communications and we didn't share contacts with each other. If I knew you were working on a deal with a company that I managed the relationship with, I wouldn't help you or I wouldn't, the, the culture said, keep it to yourself. And that company, um, a mediocre star, you know, uh, to be sure, a mediocre tale. That's what dragged that culture down to a place where, you know, it just really was just a function of people showing up to work and, and not creating and executing on a mission. And I stayed three years there and I couldn't believe that, like, it, it was so mediocre in that way. By contrast, there are other companies that you go, you look at uh, Zappos Shoes, for example, that got acquired by Amazon. You know, the culture there was say yes to the customer as many times as you can. And that informed every single behavior. I was on the phone with that company one time. I had returned some shoes, just didn't know how to do it. And the guy literally said to me, you've asked me for three things. I've said yes to all three of them. Are you really done asking or do you want me to say yes to some more stuff? You know, <laughs> and so I kept piling it on. Now, the upshot was I bought a lot more shoes for over, the, over my lifetime, but even on that one call, because that was the case. So I just like that sort of... Uh, interposition between those two. Well, it's like Horst Schultz and, you know, his entire philosophy at Ritz-Carlton 
came from his under or he's an amazing believer. You know, love God and love others, right? He said every single person has the exact same values, and he used to tell his staff, you know what you and these are people, the poorest people coming in to be you know maids and cooks, you know, as they're entering hospitality industry. And he said, listen, you are ladies and gentlemen serving Serving other ladies ladies and gentlemen. gentlemen. And he did something unprecedented. Every single person there was empowered. If I had just been hired as a landscaper and I saw, and I was clipping a hedge and somebody next to me was complaining about their room, every single person could spend up to $5,000 on any guest at any time. I could walk over and say, sir, I want to make that right. They're like, what? But uh, so, I mean, talk about your not a commitment to values that the industry thought he was crazy because of what that could cost. What it did was create such a powerful brand experience for people and the people loved it. And and you talk about this commitment. I mean, that was that's true commitment to a value. It's commitment and ritual. And ritual. And ritual as well. Right. Because they have a stand up meeting every morning. I think it's at 940 a.m where your pod, your four or five people come together, they pull out the card. And anytime you stay at the Ritz, you can ask any employee for their card. And it has ladies and gentlemen, sir, ladies and gentlemen. The next one is the four cardinal points or compass points or something of that nature. They have their four core values and they all go around. And we've totally ripped this off, by the way, in my company and in my consulting, that you must ritualize those values. You must show them in practice for people. And uh, if you've ever been, we had a, a meeting one time at Ritz's headquarters in uh, Virginia and whatever time I, the standup was, and I think it's 940. And I think it's like that same time all over the world. We were in the course of the meeting and they said, oh, it's time for standup. And we had to go out into the atrium and they had, you know, 12 floors of offices and the entire company stood over the rails of the atrium while somebody down on the ground floor did the standup meeting, it took five minutes, but did the standup meeting with the entire company, the entire management team right there. So the ritualization, the putting into action what the words are and modeling how it should be mastered, that's a key point of culture. And we, we walk our clients through finding the values, ritualizing the values and living the values. And then you move on to people who are going to live those values with you. Yeah, because think about the temptation. I could just see this, right? Well, okay, everybody's going to be doing that. We have this important business meeting, right? But no, like, hey, we're getting up. I mean, we are all in. It's not, it's a non-negotiable. Like, so here's what I'm saying is that becomes the ritualization because it's so important because you've connected these values to your success, your culture, your people, and what you want to do is non-negotiable. That's right. That's where you got to get to. That's where you have to get to. As a leader, you got to move your people and your culture to that place. Yes. It will be like this or we won't be here. Right now, I think this is a time of a leadership challenge that is unique with everything that's happened with the devastation that's happened. There's people that are doing amazing, but I'll just tell leaders out there listening right now, you you're either your employees or your employees family have experienced a death in the family, somebody being financially devastated um, circumstances, not being what people expected. Like right now, I really believe that the level of stress that people are under, I, think that this year, going into the latter half of 2021, we're going to see in our employees stress, anxiety, mental health, as we all worked and we kept everything together, you know, the last year and a half is definitely starting to show up. So as leaders, it is more important than ever to understand our people 
to get to know them, to connect to who they are. And guess what? Take time out of your life. And you know what? Uh, the people are have precedent over the numbers. You take care of your people and you have that great culture in place, you're going to hit the numbers. So That's Trey, exactly. you talk about in your book that it is so important for us as a leader to go in and understand our people. So if that is not our natural bent, let's say I'm somebody who's maybe a little bit more either transactional or I'm in this role, I have pressure from either my boss or the board to get it done, right? You, I mean, you know that pace. I've been I've been a yeah. leader of a public company. The, the pace and the pressure, is you almost feel like I don't have time to go sit here and go have coffee with all my employees. Right. So put yourself in those shoes. Maybe you've been there. I'm guessing you have, right? How do I, how do I strike that balance? I think it begins with a mindset understanding that that is your job. And we are all doing a lot more on our to-do list than we're supposed to be doing as CEOs. This is a core principle of mine. There, there has never been a consulting or training engagement that I've gone into where I have found that CEO properly tasked and therefore the rest of his organization or her organization properly tasked. So the first point of it is you've got to understand that you have a job and your job is to do culture, people, and numbers. And then if you have time left over, you're allowed to put other things on that to-do list. Because think about it. There's no job description for the CEO. It's the only job in the company that doesn't have a written job description, right? No company has that. Maybe guys with uh, you know executive recruiters or something of that nature, but you hire a CEO with the understanding that he knows how to be a CEO. So bringing that to the table, you have to understand that your CEO job is culture, people, and numbers. And you set the agenda and do the measurement and management of the achievement of that agenda. What it doesn't mean is that you pick out the coffee creamer flavor in the break room at the plant, right? Just because you happen to like it or what have you. That is a delegable task for somebody else to do and because it can't be informed by your expertise at all. And the reason that I say that the CEO only does three things, and of course I understand that we all have to-do lists and we're all doing things that we're supposed to be doing to make our companies grow, to make them vibrant places for people to self-actualize and to make money, I get that. And I don't scold anybody for doing that kind of work, but you are the only one in the job, in the company who can do culture, people and numbers. And when you, when you are derelict in that, or when you try to delegate those things or leave them undone, you're damaging the entire fabric of the company. So well said. And one of my mentors is I was, we were in a kind of a hyper growth phase of one of my companies. He asked me if I knew the difference between leadership and management. And I can't remember what I told him, but here's what he, he shared with me. He said, John, when you're in that executive position or, you move out, or, or when you're running a group or a division, you want to be leading your people. And that is equipping them educating them and empowering them to do their job without you having to be hands-on. Management is when you're managing people or managing a process. What that means is you are either making a decision or you're telling people what to do. And he said, anytime that somebody comes up to you and you have to tell them what to do or make a decision, or you're making a decision like the creamer or how we set up the board, you know, the conference room for a client meeting, that is a flag that guess what? I'm managing that person. I'm managing a process. He said, listen, your goal should be in a leadership role 100% of the time. 
especially with your people and your team, because that allows you to make the decisions that only you can make. That's exactly right. And I got to tell you, for me, that was like this incredible feedback loop that forced me to say, okay, I have to keep telling Trey how to do this or what to do, or he keeps coming to me and I give him the answer. So what I've created in one, somebody with phenomenal leadership potential is this dependency because he's always trying to please me. So he, guess what? He'd rather come and ask me what he thinks because I'm what I think because I'm giving him my opinion versus doing it on himself, his own. So I actually had to realize that in some of these dynamics as a CEO, and this actually came out of some of my uh, 360 feedback that I brought to a mastermind group. They said, John, uh, one of the guys, I remember him looking at me and said, hey, this thing that you've been complaining about, what is your role as the leader in creating that dynamic? And I had never seen it from that perspective. Yep, exactly right. And that was a powerful moment for me. That was actually a transformational moment for me as a leader when I realized all these things that I'm complaining about, I actually either have a hand in or I created. Whoa. Yeah. The number one downloaded Harvard Business Review article was written in 1976, and it's called The Monkey on My Back. And the whole point of the article is that executives, CEOs, whoever it happens to be, we allow our subordinates to delegate upwards and, and take the monkey that they're dealing with. And as soon as they hit the first mental resistance, they come to us and say, what should I do? And instead of doing the right thing, we say, well, give me the monkey and I'll show you what to do. And the next time they have a troublesome monkey, guess where that monkey goes? And so if you visualize it, we're walking around, if you have 15 direct reports, which no one should have, you know, you have 75 monkeys on your back, each little part of it. So the key is, and I coach this all the time, and, and this is one of the light bulb moments for my CEO clients, is when someone comes on with a monkey on my back and they sit down in my office, I say, gosh, that's really interesting. And they put the monkey on my back and then I take it back and I give it to them and say, what do you think the right answer is? And barring an absolutely wrong answer that is going to blow something up, then I think that's what we should do too. And if I do that three times, what I get is status updates about this was the problem. This is what I decided to do. I'll keep you informed, which eventually moved to here's what I did last weekend. Oh, my numbers, my numbers are totally met and I handled it. Right. But until I looked at them and said, what do you think we should do? Then they thought what they should do is bring me the problem to tell them what I think we should do. And that's not how I want to live my life not in 15-minute opinion-based interactions. One of the most important skills I think that leaders need to learn in today's environment is coaching skills. Asking those questions like you talked about, how to really listen to what's going on and to be able to give feedback. So, you know, if somebody is answering a question, I'll never forget this. You know, I, I asked for a status update and somebody's like, yeah, it's going great. Like their voice kind of dropped, their energy dropped. And I think just right there in the moment, you even just say, hey, when you said that, all of a sudden, dude, it's like you got smaller. Like, what's yeah. going on? All of a sudden, they just opened up, had no idea what to do. But that was a great place for, I could have jumped into that gap and said, here's what you do. Boom, boom, boom. Here's how you get out of it. That would not have been serving them well. We stuck with it. And I just kept asking them questions until they had modified the plan they were on as they were halfway down the track. And I thought I had a good chance of success. Like you said, I love it. And I got to tell you, though, let's say I give you an idea that you know is not the best. You've been there before. You know that there's a better way to do it. But you know what I just said is not going to blow up. 
How do you handle that, Trey? Because I, you know, I, I know for a fact, maybe this is just me, just completely letting go as a leader and letting my people succeed and fail, you know, that real empowerment area, the delegation area, which is so important, but I have been the biggest impediment there. How do you help your leaders do that? It's coaching development. It's an elemental development that has to go in inside of the CEO. So they call it the sin of the desert, right? And the sin of the desert is knowing where the water is, but not telling the thirsty man. And so if one of my employees comes to me and says, this is the track that I think I'm going on. And, you know, I call those kind of level two conversations, right? Because they've moved from, hey, I want you to do the work to I'm going to do the work, but I want you to tell me that I'm doing the right thing. That's effectively what they're asking for. They're asking for a loan of confidence. Then many times I will say, that sounds like a good plan. I know it's been tried before. I feel like it looked like this at the time it felt right, but here's what we found. But I'll be interested in understanding how it turns out for you. So I've signaled to them that what you're suggesting has been tried before. I've probably in that conversation dropped a name of someone else who you might go talk to who they tried it and see what they did. And I'm not thinking that's the strongest thing in the world for you to do. But again, if it's not going to blow it up, it is well worth the time and wasted effort for somebody to make a misstep and to learn from it than from moving on and making something where they don't learn any lesson at all because I taught them or I instructed them as to the right thing. And John, here's the other thing. Just because I think it's the right thing doesn't mean it's the right thing. There's no magic in the throne that gives me the right answer every single time. Yeah, we may have tried it that way once before and it didn't work, but it could have not worked for a lot of different variables. Number one, which could have been me on the project, right? So for me to signal, hey, do a little more thinking on this and do a little more investigation before you pull the trigger, that's okay to them. And they may find that the path that they choose is the best. Yeah, no, I love it. It's such a great reminder because what maybe worked for me with me, my personality and how I do things, my approach doesn't mean that that's the answer for somebody else. And in, in recognizing that, but the gift of letting somebody else go try something on their own, because in the, you know what, also as part of the culture, right? Not a, hey, we succeeded or we failed, but every, you know, everything that we go into, if we look at, and this was what we did in the Navy as a fighter pilot, right? Because our lives depended on the guys that we flew with. So in that debrief, in the after action uh, meeting, we focused on a couple areas. And the thing is, hey, what are some of the things that we did well? Even though we've, you know, from all ex- intents and purposes, failed the mission. But what did we do well? And hey, what did we learn? So the next time we just get a little bit gooder. Yeah. And so it's like this constant process that every time that we, and so, yeah, unless it's going to, you hear somebody's idea and you know that that's a catastrophic ending. Right. But instead of just telling them that challenge them, like, Hey, what could the possible outcome of that be? What do you think the vendor, the customer might, how do you think they might react to a proposal like that? If you can force somebody to think through it without giving them the answer the brain on a functional MRI, when somebody's being asked a question and is being forced to think is lit up. When you're telling them information, the brain looks no different than when somebody's watching a television program. Right. So there is not learning happening if we're just sharing and even though we think there is. That's exactly right. It, because we have to experience our way through learning. And so, you know, even the catastrophic definition, how often do we see decisions that could potentially be catastrophic? We don't. We don't. Because people still drive, you know, cars off cliffs all the time. What I do 
in that situation, though, is if they mention to me someone who I know is out of sync with our values, who I know is a disaster or something of that nature, I will very often say, I'm interested in your ideas on this. That person will not be part of anything that we do as a company, right? And obviously that's not an internal person because if I'm having to tell somebody on my team that it's my fault for having that person on the team. But it's usually an external discussion like, uh, you know, this lawyer says he can bring this opportunity to us. And, and I've known for many years that that guy's not gonna deliver anything or whatever the opportunity happens to be. I'll always make sure that if it's a people issue that conflicts with values that people know very bluntly my feeling on that. And I have team members that they see the pie in the sky, but they don't have the experience that I have with other people who don't deliver. Mm. And they get a little testy about that. Like, oh, he's about to bring me a big paycheck, but you say I can't do business with him, you know, but it's very important to keep, that's part of the cultivar uh, role. That's part of what I'm supposed to do is keep the weeds out. Well, Trey, we should do um, just with our time. First of all, it's been fantastic to talk with you guys out there. The book is a CEO only does three things, finding your focus. And I think staying focused as a CEO is so important. And this helps you actually put a lens on the camera, uh, what you've written here in the book. How do people get in touch with you, get the book, follow up with you, Trey? Yeah. So the book's on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, all of those uh, places where, where fine books are sold. Uh, we're working on getting it into the airport now that the airports are reopened. I wrote the book because I travel so much. Uh, I wanted to be able to pick it up and uh, read it on a flight from Atlanta to DFW and back. And uh, so we've written it and, and trimmed it up and it's you know very practical. Uh, it's selling very well. So we're very happy about that. So they can pick that up. The audio book is in production now as well. That'll be out later in the year. So that's good. Any consulting uh, that people need or coaching or anything of that nature, you can find me at uh, wwwtrinity blue dot com. Or what was that again? It kind of cut out. Trey, what? Oh, sorry. At uh, trinity-blue.com. Trinity-blue.com. Yep. Or trey-taylor.com. Okay. Awesome. And uh, one of the things, John, I do is I always, uh, oh, I mentioned two things. One, I have a newsletter that goes out uh, every time I fill one up and send it out. Sometimes that's three times a week. Sometimes it's uh, once every couple of weeks, but you can get a copy of that. No charge, of course. Uh, plant your flag dot live. And uh, I have 10 or 11,000 people that receive that uh, email on a, on a periodic basis. And people seem to like the material that goes into that. And then I do, um, you know, I just always make an offer that if you want to email Trey at trinity-blue.com and find some time, 30 minutes or so to get oriented on a problem, uh, happy to help people do that. And I make that offer pretty broadly. Not a lot of people take me up on it, which is okay but those that do seem to be really at the crux of the decision that they just need an outside uh, perspective on and, and always love to have that kind of help available in the world. Yeah. And thank you for doing that. Right. Just a spirit of generosity that I love. And you know, what? as we wrap up, you know, the audience, you know, people out there that are in that CEO role or people are, that are in a leadership role, uh, just any final thoughts for them, Trey? Let me tell you what makes a good CEO different from a great CEO. And it is very easy to do once you understand what the uh, skill set requires. A great CEO sees gifts in other people and calls them out. Uh, the first part of that process is called preception. I see a gift in you before you perceive it in yourself. Preception. Mm -hmm. The second one is evocations from the Latin word ex voca to call from within. So when you see someone doing something well and you see them exercising a gift, very often they do not recognize 
how defining that gift is within their own life and therefore in their own success and happiness in the rest of the world. That is our moral imperative to call that out and to say, you're really good at this. If you stick with this, you'll be the best person that ever did this thing, whatever it happens to be. I want you to know it. I want you to acknowledge it. And I want you to know that I see it in you. And calling that out of people is the fingerprint that we can leave on people's um, you know, self-image for the rest of their lives. My chairman of my board, um, like I was describing earlier, my Vistage group came in as a peer of Jack Welch at GE. That's the same age group and that sort of thing in the, in the 70s. And uh, Jack would do that all the time when he was a sales manager, you know, a regional sales manager. He would go, you know, precept these gifts and call them out of people, including my friend George. George was in a meeting with me and I mentioned, hey, Jack Welch died while you were on the flight to the meeting. Did you know that? And the man hadn't seen Jack Welch in 40 years and was immediately in tears mm. because the way that they had interacted back in the past. And Jack Welch had said to him, George, if you do these three things, you'll be the best person doing these three things for the rest of your career. George did those three things and was the best person in his career doing those, th those three things and made a, a tremendously successful life from doing that. The great ones touch our souls in a way that everybody else doesn't choose to do. And my message to the readers or, you know, in the book or to the members of your uh, podcast audience is go and do that today. It's very easy to, to look around you and see somebody who's doing something that they love, doing it well. It's easy to praise that and to call it out and encourage them so that they see it in themselves. That's beautiful, right? This culture of, uh, you know, affirming others and giving them that feedback and, you know, seeing what's in them before they see it in themselves. What a gift that is. I actually, like, it just made, as you've shared with that, and I talk about it in my book because it was so powerful, but it made me think back on all those men and women in my life that saw that in me, brought that out in me, challenged me, gave me stretch opportunities I did not think I was ready for, Yeah, but they did. And guess what? I didn't always do it the best, but with their help, it shaped me and gave me a confidence and a learning process that served me my whole life. You know, and that's the kind of leader I want to be, you know, Trey, I want to, I want to be that kind of leader when people look back, like what you just talked about and said, you know what, I haven't seen John in 40 years. He's actually passed away. But you know what, I am where I am today because of how he led me all the way back. Right. Imagine if all of us had that as a mindset of leaders, we'd change this country. You'd change the entire world inside and out. You know, it may not always be possible, appropriate, what have you to say thanks for those that have done it for you. But it is always possible and appropriate for you to pass that gift on to somebody else. Oh, that's a beautiful sentiment. Thank you. And Trey, it's great to have you on. And maybe we could even have you on. I think it would be a great conversation for you and I, because uh, as you're doing this and you're moving toward excellence, every organization has those people that gravitate toward what we're talking about. But we also have those either we hire, we don't hire well. Or they're just not in alignment with our values, but they're also doing a good job. Maybe yeah. we could do a part two and say, hey, how do we, around the people, right, hire better, but also retain those and either move them toward what we're trying to do, or how do we, you know, let them know that this isn't where we need to be? Because some of those are some really uncomfortable conversations. It is a true leadership skill, and it has to be done sooner rather than later. Because once again, you teach what you tolerate. And if uh, your whole right. team sees some of these people that are constantly throwing hand grenades into your, your meetings and your culture, they're going to, nobody's, they're not going to be all in. 
that's exactly right. I, I have a client uh, last year and he described one of his members as Molotov. So what do you mean by that? And that guy would come in and throw a Molotov cocktail in the room and walk out, you know, set everybody on fire and he would walk out completely free from any of the damages, you know? Would you be open to doing that as a part two? Absolutely. Yeah, Because I think that's a challenge with people right now, especially with remote offices. We're not having the FaceTime that we used to. It's different. It's a, I'm not saying it's a little bit harder, but it's just different. How's that? Yeah. Um, yeah but yeah, let's, I'd love to do a part two. I'd love to do that, John. Just uh, let's schedule that up anytime we can. And uh, of course, I'll be praying for you in your recovery uh, with the COVID mess too. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Well, keep rocking. Keep knocking them alive. Thanks for writing this book. It's fantastic. I just want to let everybody out there know, by the way, a couple of my clients I'm working with, I'm giving, you know, I have my own book, but I'm giving them Trey's book. And I think it's really important for all of us as leaders to be finding those things that you know can really help other people, bless other people. And because, you know, so many people have done that to me. So Trey, thanks for putting the time in to writing this. It's fantastic. Thanks, Sean. Good to be with you. All right. See you, buddy. Okay. 